Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Singing in the Rain from 1952 with my wonderful guest, Zoe Palco. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I'm your host, Sarah Greenfield, and I have my wonderful guest, Zoe Palco, on the show today. Hi, Zoe. Hello. It's good to be back. Yay. So we're talking about the movie Singing in the Rain from 1952. I know, not a big deal at all. Not yeah, it's a like small film. One of the greatest movies ever made. I know you've seen it before, but what did you think? How did, how did it strike you, this viewing? I mean, hot take, controversial. Thought it was pretty good. I am shocked. Shocked. Well, I mean, I mean, there's gonna be a lot of buzz. You're gonna get, a, you're gonna get a lot of things on the message boards. But you know what? I'm gonna stick by my guns. I thought it was a good movie. Yeah. What's fun about this viewing? So, like, this is one of my movies. This is like a movie I've been watching forever, throughout my life. I love it. I watch it when I'm sad. Like, I've seen it one million times. And I always enjoy it. I never don't enjoy this movie. Um, and I will say something that was like striking me this time is how smart they are about combining like the fantasy of movie world, like what it's like to make a movie, the real aspects of it, the fantasy aspects of it. I don't know. I was really, those were all hitting me this time, mm -hmm. how smartly this movie was made um, for being like a big cheesy musical. There are some brains behind it and I love it. But um, I also just wanted to share some cool history that I have with this movie. I watched this movie for the first time when I was 11 in Miss Peterson's choir class. I feel like every movie musical I've talked with you, Zoe, about, like White Christmas, <laughs> Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, I watched in that class. She was an awesome teacher. She got all of us watching these classic movies and like got us into them. And I am forever grateful. So thank you, Miss Peterson. I think I want to give Miss Peterson a hug. Like, thank you for creating Sarah Greenfield because <laughs> you have clearly helped shape the person who I'm talking to. Thanks, Miss Peterson. So yeah, we watched this. Uh, but also, I've had the opportunity to see this film in really cool settings. So like, when I was 15 years old, that was the 50th anniversary of Singing in the Rain. Um, and Gene Kelly's daughter lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is like where I'm from, pretty much. So I got to see at the Michigan Theater, which is like a special old fashioned theater in Ann Arbor where they have an organ that they will play before the shows. I got to see his daughter give a speech about the movie and about her dad and she introduced it and it was the 50th anniversary and it was so cool. And then I've also had the opportunity to see this film at the um, 
Turner Classic Movies Film Festival where they showed it in the theater that they are showing in the movie. So in the movie, they show us Grauman's Chinese Theater. Like I got to see this movie there. So when she's like running up the aisles at the end of the theater, I was like, that was in this theater. I am right now sitting where she was running. How cool is that? Meta. And I've also gotten to see this film at the Egyptian Theater, which is another historical theater in Hollywood from The Balcony, which is just like a special way to watch old movies. And it was on film and I got to take a friend who had never seen it and it was beautiful. So with all that, um, the plot synopsis of this movie, Singing in the Rain. So this movie is like an ode to 1920s filmmaking in the era when we went from silent movies to talking movies. So um, it's about this guy, Don Lockwood, who's paired with this woman, Lena Lamont, and they are silent picture stars. And they show like the rise of his like getting into the business and they show the juxtaposition of that with like he's describing to like one of the gossip dish ladies of the day about his life and how incredible his life has been and how his motto is dignity, always dignity. But we see the real life aspect of it. So he's describing like I went to the best boarding schools and I trained at the best places. But we see like the reality of it, which is like he grew up in lower class environments. He was dancing for pennies in the saloon. It's not what he's saying. It's a lot like less polished than that and he gets his like true up and coming rise as a stuntman in pictures and through these stunts he gets the status of leading man he works with lena lamont they don't like each other because she didn't like him until he became a star and he clocked that because he's smart lockwood and lamont their pictures are hits uh one night after a show don lockwood gets attacked by fans oh no they're like literally ripping his outfit apart because they want souvenirs from him and to escape he's a swashbuckler by the way in these films he jumps on a moving bus to get away from the fans and uh he lands in the car of miss debbie reynolds playing kathy selden in her first big film role it's not technically her first she had another film role before this but it's like her big break and she is only 18, right? I think it's 18. She was 20 when this came out, but I think she was 18 when she was cast and 19 when she was filmed, if I recall correctly, I think. I trust you. We meet Debbie Reynolds. She originally is like, oh no, you're a killer. And then she pulls over and there's a cop and he's like, this is a movie star. And she's like, oh shoot, that is a movie star. Never mind, you're not a killer. You're totally famous. Oops, sorry. Um, so she's like, I'm sorry for this mistake. I will drive you wherever you want to go. Or she's like, I'm going to Beverly Hills. If you're going in that direction, I can drop you. And he immediately starts hitting her on her in a very uncomfortable way and assumes she will like fall at his feet because he's a movie star. And she does not do this. She's like, um, excuse me. No, you're not even that good. Uh-uh, not a fan. Don't like this. Movies are lame. You're lame. Everyone knows that real acting on Broadway is the best. Goodbye, sir. And so she kind of makes a fool of him and he hits on her in a creepy way. Um, but she drops him off at his house so he can get changed out of his like ripped up gear. And she goes on her merry way. And just a total side note, as someone who lives in Los Angeles, I can tell you it does not take five minutes to get from the heart of Hollywood to Beverly Hills. It does not. That's false. <laughs> that drive was incorrect and it bothered me, especially when he's walking home later on and singing in the rain after he drops her off at her house. And he's like, no, driver, drive on. I was like, she clearly lives in Hollywood and you live in Beverly Hills. That is miles. <laughs> You're, that's not close. You don't want to walk in that in the rain. Anyway, back to the plot synopsis. Uh, he goes to this party. He's thinking about this girl. Lena, who, by the way, has a terrible voice, is hitting on him and he hates it. And then 
out of the party cake <laughs> pops <laughs> Debbie Reynolds because she's a dancer for the evening. And she dances and he falls in love with her. And at the end of the, the dance, he's bugging her and she's pissed about it. So she throws a pie in his face, except she misses his face. And she hits Lena Lamont's face instead. And Lena's pissed. And she loses her job and she gets out of there. But Don, like, can't stop thinking about her. Don is Gene Kelly. He can't stop thinking about her. So he's searching for her. And one day, she's on a set shooting this insane number called Beautiful Girls. And um, they, they, he finds her. And they're, they get back together. And he tells her that he loves her. And she's like, OK. And they fall in love. And it's beautiful. And he's 20 years older than she is. And that's fine. And uh, <laughs> what's next? And then, um, oh, and then so talkies. Talkies. So, talkies are a big hit. Talkies are like the next thing. So Don and Lena are trying to make a talkie, except as I mentioned, Lena has an awful voice. Like we're talking Miss Adelaide from Guys and Dolls, like, what am I, dumb or something? Like that kind of nasally, can't hide it voice. And she has no self-awareness about it. So she's not even able to like fix it. Like she hears it and she's like, I sound great. And you're like, oof. You do, but you don't sound like they want you to sound. So uh, they're trying to make a talkie. It goes so bad. Like they make every mistake they could possibly make when learning this new technology. The audiences hate it. Gene Kelly's like, oh, my career is over. This career that I worked so hard for, it's done. And then um, Kathy Selden, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor, Cosmo Brown, have this brilliant, I might have mixed that up, doesn't matter. They have this brilliant idea where they're like, oh my gosh, you're going to turn it into a musical and you're going to have Kathy do the voice of Lena so that no one knows she talks bad and we'll give Kathy the credit so that like she'll still be able to have a career. How does that sound to everybody? And they're like, great. So they go about this plan, but Lena finds out and she's pissed. She talks to her lawyer. She realizes she has this insane contract where she can like sue the studio if they say anything bad about her, which is absolutely bananas because I don't think that was ever a thing. I feel like no actors had any rights ever. They couldn't even choose their movies. You're telling me that they have a say in their publicity? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, she is the studio in a hard place where they have to do what she says. And so she puts out this publicity campaign saying how great her voice is. And um, the night of the talking picture with Kathy's voice as hers, it's a big hit and everybody loves it. And they're like, can you believe Lena Lamont's voice? And so she's like, oh my gosh, my audience loves me. I wanna go out and give a speech and tell them how much I appreciate them. So she does. And they're like, that's not your voice. Sing, Lena. And she's like, okay, I, I will sing for you. And so she leaves the stage. She's like, Kathy Selden has to sing for me because I say so. And they all, the men come up with a plan and they don't include Kathy in the plan. So she gets upset because she doesn't know what the plan is. And they very much should have included her in this plan, but whatever. They're like, Kathy, you're under contract for five years. You have to sing for Lena and be her voice. And that's how it is. And she's like, fine, but I never want to see you again, Don Lockwood. So she goes, they set up a microphone. They have this super cool shot where we see the front Lena performing to the audience, which is kind of how like movie making is. It was such a metaphor for movie making, like what you see and what you don't see and what it looks like versus what it is. Oh, it was great. It like sums up the whole film in a shot. Yeah. Anyway, so we see Lena out front. She's lip syncing to what Kathy's singing behind her and it's singing in the rain. 
And then the boys raise the curtain and we see that it's not Lena singing. It's in fact, Kathy Selden. And Kathy Selden runs up the theater aisle and she's like, oh, I'm crying with her two perfect tears. And Gene Kelly's <laughs> like, stop that woman. She's the real voice you heard in love tonight. That's Kathy Selden. And they end up together and they end up starring in a picture together called Singing in the Rain. And they kiss. And honestly, it's not a very good movie kiss, but that's okay. We love this movie. And the movie ends. And it was so delightful and so happy. And the musical numbers were excellent. That's the plot synopsis of Singing in the Rain. Yay! Let's dive into this. I mean, I mentioned it. My number one thing was just like, they make the audience feel kind of like we're in on a secret. Like they're showing us behind the scenes of filmmaking while we're making a movie. I really love that vibe. And then I love the irony of like, they're showing us the behind the scenes of this movie, but they're not including everything that they're doing. So like, this is a movie about someone being dubbed and being uncredited, and they use someone else's voice for two of Debbie Reynolds' songs, and she's not credited. Right. <laughs> but like, like um, when they're tap dancing, like they're not wearing taps on their shoes. The taps are added separately. Gene Kelly rises to fame as a stuntman, and yet has stuntmen performing the stunts that he is supposedly doing, right? So like, that's funny. <laughs> you know, there's all these movie magic things that they don't call out that they're doing, but then all these other movie magic things that they do call out. So I just think that's such an interesting idea and like such an interesting topic. I feel like this movie more than many other movie musicals um, and maybe even some musicals too, does what a musical is supposed to do really, really well. In that when it comes to a point where you can't express your feelings in dialogue, you go into song. And I feel like this movie does that so well. Like when they get to a point where they can't express what they feel in regular dialogue, they go into song and it's just such a joyful, wonderful, seamless, honest experience, which is funny. Like it feels very grounded and honest, but like also so like whimsical and fantastical like it's a great mixture of all the things that shouldn't work but do that makes me love this movie and it makes you love it every single time you see it even if you've seen it a million times it's beautiful okay so let's like break down the musical numbers and let's break down the only thing that doesn't totally work in this film which is mm -hmm. the ballet I have an unpopular opinion about the ballet because I like it. I know that everyone hates it. I know that I'm the only person in the whole world that likes it, but I can recognize that it doesn't totally fit in this movie. The, scar the scarf dance. The dream ballet with the scarf dance. Viewers at home, allow me to debrief you. Towards the end of the film, it's the last big kind of musical number. Oh, I should mention though, it's not the last number technically. I mean, the last number is You Are My Lucky Star, which mm -hmm. rhymes portal with mortal, so you know it's a great lyric song but uh the last like big fancy flashy musical number is this dream ballet that gene kelly is describing to the studio head they're watching a cut of the film that they've just redone to turn the dueling cavalier their you know their awful talking picture into the dancing cavalier their stylish awesome movie musical and so there's like there's one scene that we still have to film and this is what it is it's broadway melody broadway melody but it also makes no sense with what they had described earlier so what they had described when they were talking about how they were going to change the movie to make it a musical cosmo came up with the idea of like okay so what if we've got this broadway hoofer who's on the set of a show and in between acts he's reading the book tale of two cities and he gets hit in the head with a sandbag and he wakes up and he's in the French Revolution. So they describe that, but then what they show us in the dream ballet is not that. Nope. 
it's its own story. I think what the deeper purpose of the Dream Ballet was to do what the opening montage and Fit as a Fiddle did for Hollywood. I think they were trying to do that with Broadway. So I think it was like, we've done this whole film as a love letter to Hollywood and to show like the transition period between silent films and talking films and like, look where we are now. Let's do that with Broadway, but in just one musical number. The deeper purpose too of the ballet is to show that you have to do what you do for the love of it and not to impress anyone and not for success. You gotta dance because you love it. And I think that's the ultimate purpose of the Dream Ballet. I remember when I was like young, young watching this, that whole Broadway melody, whole sequence, I was never into. Because I think that at the time, I didn't realize it, but watching it now, I'm like, oh, because it's disconnected. There's no, I don't, I'm not emotionally invested in what this is because it's a, it's a story within a story. So therefore the characters that they're portraying aren't the characters that I've gotten to know and that I care about. So I feel like it's kind of just jammed in there as like a look at this thing we can do. And I mean, as a little spinoff, yeah, it's technically awesome. There's some really great dance numbers. It's this great spectacle thing, but am I emotionally invested in what it is? No. Am I excited to go back to the characters that I've been watching for the past hour and a half? Yes. And I feel like the pinnacle of that, of that feeling for me was the ballet when I'm like, what is this? Like, I'm <laughs> what, what now? There's a, there's a lot of scars. Oh, Zoe's referring specifically, viewers at home, if you have not seen this, which is my mom. She's talking about, there's like, so there's a musical within a musical. And then in that musical, there's another musical. But the ballet is a modern ballet between Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly. And Sid Charisse has been wearing a 1920s wig for this whole dream ballet. But for some reason in this moment, she is, I know why actually, because I love this movie so much. So I know why it is this way. It's because they wanted to show her in a natural way. She's not wearing tights. This is one of the first movies to show bare legs without tights like that in a dance sequence. Uh So she's not wearing tights. She's bare legged and barefooted. Basically, she has these little tiny, if you look closely, little tiny Mm -hmm. like modern dance shoes. But it's like a modern dance number with her hair down. It's supposed to feel very natural. And it's supposed to, I believe, emulate the feeling of love on film like the way that you know they have that embrace where he she like wraps him up in that Mm -hmm. scarf and then and the scarf like consumes him it shows like how love consumes you and i think all of that was supposed to be a callback to the earlier number he has with kathy when they're doing the movie magic because it's like Mm -hmm. the same color scheme in the background we've got the fan going we've got the flowy gown so this is just sarah talking like no one has confirmed this this is just my theory <laughs> but yes it is weird that that is just in there and if you're not just watching it as a lover of dance i think that it would be very annoying and frustrating as someone who just likes to watch dance i'm totally satisfied because i'm like oh so pretty i love dance but i think if you're someone that's like i really want the story to be going forward i bet you it's very frustrating is that mm-hmm. part of it yes too? Absolutely. And watching it now, I'm like, oh, this is like a cool piece of film. I think they're doing cool things. I am enjoying watching it. I I think that it's a different lens of of a type of dance that he's able to showcase and showcase with a dancer that is a dancer, unlike poor Demi Reynolds, 
I think she does great. She crushes it. But you're right. She's not like a trained dancer like Sid Charisse is. That's exactly. Yeah. So I feel like him being him, like, I feel like that was a conversation somehow. It's like, and now let's get a real dancer in here and you can showcase what you really can do, Gene Kelly, with a woman. Like, here it is. So, like, maybe that, that's totally my, like, that's my extra mustard on the situation, which probably is not the case at all. But, like, my little, like, nugget me being like, is that one? I think so an American in Paris came out the year before and was a huge hit it won the Oscar for best picture it cemented Gene Kelly as this like icon right Mm -hmm. because he was a song and dance man movie star before this but that's like icon level like you are a freaking mega movie star so this is the first film he really directs and he directs it with Stanley Donnan and I think they were trying to hold on to some of what an American in Paris is and the big deal in American in Paris is the dream ballet Mm -hmm. but the thing is it makes sense in that movie and utilizes the same dancer that is the actress in that film so it, it makes like logical sense within the film But I also, this this is the other part of my theory. The reason they used Sid Charisse in this as well is because he wanted to do a dance number like this with Sid Charisse because she was supposed to be in An American in Paris, but Um. she couldn't because she was pregnant. So she had to back out of the project, couldn't be in the project. That's great, we get Leslie Caron, but um, I think he was doing this so she could be a part of like this a legacy with him in this way. He wanted to do a dream ballet with her. He couldn't do it in American in Paris. And he's like, we're gonna do it here. He loved dancing with her. As you mentioned, she's an excellent dancer, so Cherise. Yes. Like, and again, we love Debbie Reynolds, and she's a great dancer too, but it's Absolutely. like a different kind of thing. It's like trained ballet dancer versus like really skilled musical theater performer. It's just like two different yeah. muscles. Um, plus, Debbie Reynolds was so young in this. No. You know, she was just a little baby learning to dance on set, and she's crushing it. My favorite moment in the whole movie is in this dance number. When he first sees Sid Cherise, and it's like, he tossed his hat and her foot catches his hat (laughs) and it's just her leg and they pan up to her leg and she moves his hat up so that like they have this sexy dance together where she's trying to like entice him to be with her and he there's a moment when he like decides he does want to be with her and he like grabs her and catches her in his arms and they have this moment where they stare at each other and then there's like she slides down his body as the camera pans away and it is movie magic like I get chills every time I watch it I will rewind it over and over I love it it's just perfect looking it's just so cool it's beautiful I love that moment and again I know it doesn't make any sense in the movie but I think it's just a a fantastic movie moment so I love all that I do get annoyed as a viewer at home because she has a wrinkle in her stocking. And I was like, were there no costumers <laughs> present to unwrinkle that? We are in a close-up of her leg and there's a wrinkle in the stocking. It was someone's job and they were fired. And then also you, there's a visible cut. So they visibly cut choreography and you're like, no, what are we missing? It's right before she does a developé. They're on her. She does like a turn. We see a cut happen and then they go into a developé and you're like, but what happened? Where is the lost footage? What? <sighs> so that will always drive me nuts, probably as long as I watch it. So I was like very briefly researching this film because I realized there was like so much literature on it. I'm like, nope, not going to go down that rabbit hole. It's a so, lot. <laughs> but the one thing I do remember reading, and I think there's a lot of uh, rumor versus truth with this film. But one thing I did, I don't know if it's true, is that they did film some choreography with that particular number that you're talking about 
and the the alliances of the you must be buttoned up and no sexuality the code. Yeah. i'm the code um no fun for you so i think they said that that was too risque and then they cut some dance part out and nobody knows what it was because there was that that jump in that cut and it was kind of jarring everyone like they thought it probably was there also it's probably not like that crazy at all it's probably just totally normal right? nowadays i read something like that too that's the thing with this movie there are so many rumors about this movie yeah. and it's so hard to know what's real and what's not because there, yeah there's like all this stuff written about it and lore and yeah yes. absolutely culturally it's such a huge film it's such a touchstone and so like it's referenced constantly in pop culture and zeitgeist like all the things so of course there's going to be some mystery and some lore and like yeah. unraveling all of that is going to be hard with anything that this that that that's this iconic so i want to just like finish out this number you had mentioned like some cool modern aspects of it something i love about this movie is that it's a lot of like nostalgia for the 1920s but shown with like 1950s modern technology even just like technicolor the technicolor is like bananas in this sometimes yeah. it's so much but i love that about it like the too muchness of the technicolor uh, so we have like those elements but i also just want to shout out gene kelly does some crazy awesome windmill turns if you're watching this number watch for mm -hmm. the windmills and for centuries avi and then I, one of my stupid favorite moments in this number is when there's a huge chorus around him singing the gotta dance parts they do this like silly body boogie thing in unison where they're like bringing their hands up their body and they're like oh that Broadway rhythm just watch them because you'll laugh you'll just be like this is so silly but I love it because you're not supposed to be looking at them you're supposed to be looking at him but if you look at them you just be like what are they doing they're boogieing up their body what's your face doing plus Gene Kelly's future wife is in that scene and we'll get to that later yep Okay, so love that. And then I love what I call the lonely zoom, which is, so they start the number. It's like a very cool shot. He's in, Gene Kelly is in a spotlight and he's singing to the camera and then the camera pans crazy out and you get like the depth and scope of what we're looking at in the soundstage. And then they have all the lights come on and all the people rush out. And so towards the end of the number, after he's lost to Charisse, because in the dream ballet, let me explain the dream ballet. That's what I'll do. Here's the dream ballet. So Gene Kelly, Hoofer, lonely dancer, comes to New York City. He's got glasses, he's got ugly clothes, he's telling everybody he's gotta dance. There's a really cool moment where they're passing behind him on like a treadmill, and there's some really cool visuals like a pink poodle and like a light up shirt that says eat at Joe's. Very cool details. Check out the details of that scene. <laughs> so he's in New York, everything's big, everything's crazy. He performs for agents and sings his key song, gotta dance. <laughs> Two doors get slammed in his face, but the third one opens for him. And he starts performing for people and he works his way up the ladder. But before he does, he meets Sid Charisse, falls for her. She doesn't want to be with him, even though she's attracted to him because he doesn't have any money. So he's like, I'm going to make money. So he starts off in the burlesque halls. Then he heads up to vaudeville. Then he heads up to the top of apparently the Broadway food chain, which is the Ziegfeld Follies, which I still disagree <laughs> with, but whatever, it's fine. So he's on top on Broadway. He's a big hit. Everybody loves him. He enters cool parties where they're like waltzing but wearing 20s clothes and you're like these things don't match but it's fine and um he sees Sid Charisse across a crowded room and she's wearing white and he's wearing black and they have a moment where they stare at each other and then they go to the dream ballet within the dream ballet where they can be together and love each other and they're all natural and then they exit that <laughs> 
modern dream ballet and they're back in their 1920s modern selves and she and he come together but she leaves him for money and he's sad and this is where we get to the lonely zoom so he's sad and he's got emotion on his face and he's bummed out and then he ends up in the position he was in at the top where he's in a spotlight and we we lonely zoom into his face and it's so sad and we feel so alone because the zoom is so lonely and magical and then he sees another dancer, another hoofer comes out of the dark and goes, gotta dance. And he's like, oh my gosh, that was me. I loved dancing and this was my passion. And he is renewed and he sings gotta dance and it turns into the Broadway melody and it's a joyful moment. And then at the very end of the number, he flies above the crowd, just like the car in Greece. He's magically flying above them. Not because he's on like a harness, because of the filmmaking. <laughs> They're like, look at this modern filmmaking tech. And that, my friends, is the dream ballet. Oh, no, um, you're welcome. I love that I just spent 30 minutes talking about a dream ballet that everyone hates but me. So this is gonna be a very popular moment in the podcast. <laughs> I can tell. It's like me making a case for it. It's me being like, look, I get that this doesn't fit, but give it a chance. Look at it as its own thing. If you look at it as its own thing, it is an interesting piece of filmmaking. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Or just fast <laughs> forward to the part with Sid Charisse when she's in the green dress and just live that moment and then move on. That's That would be what I would say. I feel like I would be more into it and just appreciate the dance for the dance and like the piece for what it is if the music could catch me more, but the music doesn't hold me as much as the other music in the film. And for some, and I think that if it had that hook and it had that, like, I don't know. I think that's, that's part of it too, for me, even if it doesn't fit, if the music was like, oh, I just want to move to this. This is amazing. Like I would totally look past it. Like I've looked past other random ass dance, like pieces in other films, a la white Christmas, like, hello, like those are <laughs> random as hell. And I am here for it because it's, it's the music's great. The dancing's fantastic. So I think that, I think that if the music could hold me a little more then I feel like I'd be here for it a bit more. So the song he's singing Broadway melody, that was one of the first big movie musicals ever Broadway melody, the film. So I think it was commemorating that. And I think if we were an audience of the 50s looking back, they made a ton of those. They made like four Broadway melodies. They made <laughs> Broadway Melody of 1929, Broadway Melody of 1936, Broadway Melody of 1938, and Broadway Melody of 1940. I've seen them all. <laughs> um, but, so I think they were paying homage to that as well. And the combination of movie musicals being a part of, even though The Jazz Singer was technically like the first talkie and the first movie musical, it was kind of like paying homage to old movie musicals. But us as modern viewers, we don't have that knowledge. Yes. And even I, I do have that knowledge and didn't connect it till right now. So I think that's like a hard thread to pull as a modern viewer. And yeah, you're right. <laughs> the song isn't our favorite, but it, you would have known it back then. I think that would have colored it differently if you had that reference point. You had like maybe nostalgia attached to it. Like, absolutely. Also with the ballet, it's ironic that they made a movie musical about silent movies going to talking movies, but they put a ballet in it where there's no talking. That's uh -huh. the irony of this film as well. <laughs> so awesome. there's that. Yeah. I never thought um, of it that way. Right? Let's just do what we all want to do. Do you want to like break down every musical number? Can we just? Um, obviously. Okay, let's just do that. <laughs> this is going to be a long show, everybody. Sorry. Let's so, go. Up. 
Before we even get into the musicals, allow me to just give you some origin history, people at home, of all of this. So the reason that these songs were selected is because this is an Arthur Freed produced musical and Arthur Freed was like the MGM musical producer of the day. So all of these songs were either written by Arthur Freed or Nacio Herb Brown um, and Arthur Freed owned the rights to all of them. So his idea stemmed from like, look, I made all these movie musicals. I own the rights to a lot of these songs. I own the rights to all of these songs. I wrote these songs. I wanna make a movie out of them. He hired Condon and Green, who are like a very famous writing duo. We've gotten into them before on this show. They are fantastic. They are epic. They do Broadway. They do films. They write famous things that you love forever. Yay, Condon and Green. So <laughs> they write the script for this. And based on the music, they that's where they get the idea of like, let's make this a movie musical about movies. Um, so that's kind of where we start. We're using this Arthur Freed catalog and we're going from there. So all of these songs are from the past. They are from the 20s. They are nostalgic for our audiences watching this in the 50s. Um, so that's where we start. The movie musical numbers are special because of how they function within the story. As you had mentioned, they each have a purpose with the exception of the ballet, which was supposed to have a purpose. But um, we learn from the Dignity Always Dignity montage, which contains Fit as a Fiddle, which is like the opening number that introduces us to his relationship with Cosmo. Um, they're buddies from like the vaudeville days, you know, even though I don't think that was vaudeville. I don't know what that was. <laughs> um, but this, through this number, we learn about the facade of movie making and through like that sequence, we learn about the facade of movie making. So there's like the act of filmmaking and what film produces, like how those two things are very different and how we have this like impossible standard of what movie stars are supposed to be. And we craft these like ridiculous imaginings <laughs> of their life, you know, and you know, they're real people just like me and you. So it's like this idea of like what movies produce and represent and how you actually make them. And I feel like they show us that in Fit as a Fiddle. And I was like, ooh, that's cool. Yeah. So Fit as a Fiddle, we get backstory and juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. Then we move on to the fabulous dream of you, Debbie Reynolds. She pops out of the cake in a little pink outfit. She does all of the 1920s moves. If you're watching that at home, you're probably like, oh my gosh, that move, remember that one? It's so, so good. good. With the little balls on their hand. I used to be very mesmerized by the concept of having a little like pink ball on their hand. I don't know why, but that just was like, they're that's like cool. <laughs> hand warming muffs, but they're yeah, balls. hand warming muff. And they're like perfectly round. And then their hip had like a candy dish that was like attached to the hip that they were like giving candy out. And I'm like, that's cool. I enjoyed that as a young girl. I feel like they're supposed to be coconuts because it's the coconut grove. Exactly. And I right? no I noticed the name of the coconut grove and I'm like, all right, are they coconut? Where's the coconut? Consider the coconut. I do want to point out for anyone watching at home, for the love of God, just look at Debbie Reynolds' face throughout this. Oh, you can't not. If you want <sighs> pure joy, if you want to experience <laughs> joy, just look at her face. She is going for it. I don't know if she's having the time of her life, but she's portraying it. And in fact, she, okay, so streamer falls in her face and she handles it like a pro. She puts it into her act. She just is the best in this. I just adore her. And what's great about this number is it moves the plot forward because we see, we well, we see her, like what her real job is because she was just like, you know, shitting all over. <laughs> you know, movie stars aren't real actors. And she was doing this because he was being a pompous jerk and he was being very conceited and she wanted to put him in his place. So like, I get why she did it. Little girl. But yes, her real job is that she is a dancer. And so I like that we see her personality through this because at first we're like, you know, is she really a super serious actress? We would like her, but is she? 
this mm-hmm. from this we learn no she's not she's also an aspiring dancer just like he's you know he was a stunt guy before he was just yeah. like he was yeah but we see his face watching her and we see how much he likes her like genuinely there's like a private moment of just his face of him watching her do this dance so you see him kind of like genuinely fall for her and then we as an audience totally fall for her because she's just so adorable and fun um and yeah look at her face she just loses her mind with joy just just enjoy it i remember watching it and then i actually rewound it and watched it again because i'm like am i just watching her because the lighting was on her and she's in the middle to debbie reynolds like what's everyone else doing so i like watched it again and made a point to like like you have to make yourself look at somebody else because your eyes like you're like your brain's like no look at debbie reynolds you fool like she is amazing so I rewound it and I watched it again. It's like, what are the other ladies doing? And it's like, no, Debbie Reynolds has it, man. She has that that little X factor glow. It's she's having the time of her goddamn life in that number. And she's so good at that knee move. You know that 1920s knee move where you cross your knees and your hands? She's so good at it. All of it. Ugh. That number is also there for nostalgia as well, because it's like you're hearing the song from the past. You're seeing these dance moves from the past. They're doing all the 20s moves in this number. You're transported. You're remembering the time. OK, so now we get to make them laugh. Oh, my God. Oh, a masterpiece of musical theater right here. And what's extra brilliant about it is it's this ode to physical comedy on film. So you have like a perfect movie musical moment that is honoring all the physical comedy on film. It's so good. I remember when I was young, like a young, young little Zoe, watching this film, I was obsessed with this number. I watched it over and over and over again. And I would laugh every time. I loved it. And I watched it again for the first time in forever, obviously, for, for this. And it's still just so good. It's so many things at the same time. It is incredibly specific, but yet incredibly free. It, it It's like, it's manic, but lighthearted. Like it is, it's just so, oh God, I can't, I can't like, it, it's so nostalgic for me because I loved it so much as a kid and I watched it again and like all the warm fuzzies came. It's so good. This number, Make Him Laugh, it's Donald O'Connor's big solo number. He's trying to cheer Gene Kelly up because Gene Kelly can't find Debbie Reynolds and he's in love with her. And he's like, well, you know what? I'm just going to go into this musical number that's funny and cheer it up. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so so many things about this number. One, Arthur Freed wrote this for this film, but it's 100% a copy of a Cole Porter song called Be a Clown that Gene Kelly sang in an earlier film with Judy Garland. <laughs> so I don't know how they got away with that, but but they wrote it for this. Like this, it was, you know, written for this film and it just suits the moment so well and it suits like that early like physical comedy filmmaking so well so this movie we mentioned like it pays ode to every physical movie gag ever the only thing that doesn't happen to him because they don't have time for it is he doesn't get a pie in the face and that's okay because the scene before this had a pie in lena's face so he already got that gag he does all of these physical gags and then at the end of the number he runs up a wall (laughs) two walls twice in a row so he does it once and then does it again and when he's going to do it a third time he falls through the wall and i believe those two jumps are in one take at least yes the, oh the yes first they two are backflips are one take 
it's the two walls and then he goes through the second wall on that's all one take it is insane it's insane it's just oh god it's so good and like the way the scene builds to that point the craftsmanship of that to know how to build it to that moment is so good and it has a little like vignettes in it you know the the dummy with the hand on the knee and he's like no hand on the knee and then no and the hand the kiss and, the, ah, and it goes behind the couch like there's there's little vignettes in it that are so good the beginning is almost what makes me laugh even more because you can see his little nuances of how good he is with that comic timing he's so spot on with like the the plank goes up and he's like oh i want a plank now like that little moment so good um the little moments uh like when he is going round and round and round and he gets up and he has and he turns around back and he turns around the other way it's like that little tiny moment and he just hits it perfectly it's so funny and so good his skills as a dancer, his skills as a physical comedian, his skills as a singer, like everything is here in this number. And it's just, it's perfect. He uses every single tool in his tool belt to make that number insanely good. Oh, I can't gush about it enough. It's like one of my favorite scenes, probably in any movie. Like, I love it so much. It's so good. And like, so Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly, this is their first movie directing and they staged all these musical numbers as well. And so I would have loved to have seen that process of them working with Donald O'Connor and figuring everything out. Like it involves behind the scenes of movie sets and movie making too. So it like incorporates mm -hmm. all of these things from the film and incorporates all of these skills. It's just brilliantly done. I feel like um, Gene Kelly, could have been in every number in this piece. Like he could have mm -hmm. been like, I am the star of this film. I am directing it. I am staging it. I am going to have every number for myself. But he he does allow everyone to shine. Like Debbie Reynolds shines in her number. It utilizes her skills and she's great. Same with Donald O'Connor. Like he gives them, I, I know that he was a perfectionist and that he was very difficult to work for, but everyone has their perfect moments. Like the work pays off, I think, in this. Yes, absolutely. The next thing is we get Beautiful Girl. But before we get that, we have this like chaotic filmmaking montage of like all of these hit parade songs from the 1920s that Arthur Freed wrote that are in bananas technicolor that are cut together in this very 1950s modern way. Very frantic. It's a very like acid trip little montage. But then it like get we get the relief that it like it makes us be relieved by beautiful girls. So I think that's very smart filmmaking of like yes. building up this anticipation in this chaos. Oh my gosh. Beautiful girl. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I am calm now. Cause that song's not a big hit. That's cr a creepy, weird, slow song. Yeah. But absolutely. they allow us the relief. And the other cool thing, oh, so I want to mention the guy that sings that. I had to look it up because I had no idea who it was. His name is Jimmy Thompson. I think he's Jimmy supposed Thompson. to be like a um, a Dick Powell of this era, I mm -hmm. think. But that song is like a little slow and a little boring, but it's saved by its super weird montage of costumes at the end. Yes. Anyone for tennis? The suit will have the riot. Like the way he delivers some of those lines, I'm like, what is your choice right now? It's so weird. They're like poking fun at the 1920s, but like also having fun with it. And like, that was the style. They would do shit like that in the old days of like, I am rhyming words over some music. And you're like, oh God, <laughs> what is this? 
So yes, uh, it's so weird. He's got a, and a unique, let's call it unique voice. <laughs> unique take. He's yeah. got all of these girls around them in beautiful like 1920s, very flowy flapper outfits. And then we get to see the 1920s fashion Ugh. and it's bananas. It's bananas and it's in Technicolor. It's fabulous. Got, yeah, it's fabulous. Zoe, did you have a favorite is my question. What was your favorite outfit? Oh man. Oh, I mean, what keeps coming to mind is the monkey fur one, probably Same. because it was first, but like that's, that's all that's in my brain. It's like, it's infected my brain, the monkey fur. Yes. She has this amazing coat. So I do not condone actual like live monkey fur. Right? Maybe that's why it sticks in my brain. It's like, oh, that's beautiful. You shouldn't like that, Zoe. That's a mean. Like that's maybe that's why I'm fixated on it. It's the best one. I loved it. I would have picked that one. For me, my top two choices are I love the monkey fur. Yeah. Love that. And then I love the wedding dress at the end with that like skull cap mm -hmm. gown yeah. what is that, the veil i yeah. love it i think it looks great so those are my top two with the fashion oh, yeah it's just fun i also love the line um and you're over sweet 16 it's like it's pretty much like and you're legal it's like i put that in my modern lens because it creeps me out he's singing to the girl about how beautiful she is and he goes and you're over sweet 16 because i checked because you look young and i want to make sure i'm not going to jail but you'll notice the choreography all of the girls cover their eyes and look away and i'm like Yes, they're acknowledging the creepiness of that statement. I feel it. They feel it. We all oh, feel it. Boy. Yeah, it's a creepy statement. You look real young, but I am feeling attracted to you. Are you over sweet 16? Ew, ew, ew. Um, so yes, the choreography, at least they agree with us. Those ladies do. Yes. But I want right, to add so. like the purpose of that number too. I'm trying to say the purpose of each number that I felt like was the purpose was yeah. um. So not only is it like nostalgic and showing us like a glimpse of these ridiculous things that we did in the past, but it also shows us like the movie making magic again, like how mm -hmm. we make these things. We get to see the behind the scenes of it after the fact. It pays homage to like Busby Berkeley too. Like they at the end they do that the aerial that shot, circle, the aerial yes, the aerial shot with the circle where they're doing like a Busby Berkeley backbend into a star, you know. Um, yeah. And also just a side note, like why was Rita Moreno there, but not utilized? Rita Moreno is in this film. Rita, she's a star, she's an EGOT winner and they do not utilize her. And she was supposed to have a song that they cut. It never got filmed. She was supposed to sing, um, I got a feeling you're fooling, but they used it for that montage and they ended up not using her, but she's Aww. on the set. If that was her picture, but she was in filming that day. I don't know. I was like, why is her character on the set? I'm happy to see Rita Moreno. <laughs> they very much underutilized her. She should have had a bigger part. Next, we get to You Were Meant For Me. What a perfect, beautiful piece of filmmaking. <laughs> I mean, it, it also, like, that's movie magic right there. He literally, like, combines. I wrote, he creates the, quote, unquote, real. He creates a real moment out of the fantasy. So it's like yeah. we get the insider feeling of the bare bones of movie making. Like, we see the fan. We see the lights. Yeah. And it like plays upon his, like what his insecurities are too, as like a character, Ooh. which I like because he feels like he's fake and he can't do anything that's real. So he feels afraid to say real things unless he creates this environment that he feels comfortable in that is fake. But it's a, it's a cool like way that his character kind of like explores that about him and it, it fits with his character a lot which i thought was pretty cool 
And I don't know if this means anything, but I noticed a dynamic of like at the beginning of the number, she was kind of like up high on that ladder with the wind blowing her stuff back and he was down low. And then he like went up and got her, brought her, like they, they walked down the ladder together. And by the end of the number, he's up on the ladder and she's down. And I was like, oh, cause they fell in love. It's like they, mm-hmm. he came to her, they exchanged hearts. And <laughs> she is in his position as well. She is in love too. Um, but I love, like, you get an echo of an American in Paris in this, but it's still its own. Like, we're falling in love during a musical number. So much similarities in choreography with Our Love is Here to Stay, but it's its own thing. And, like, they start off the dance. She's very tentative. Mm-hmm. Very, like, I'm not sure if I want to be in love with you. And, like, I'm going to be a little bit off and we're going to hold hands maybe a little, but I'm not with you. And then there's a moment where she's standing in front of the camera. She, like, walks away from him while they're dancing And she looks up at the, like, past the camera and she turns around and he's, like, right there behind her. And they they come together for the first time to dance together. And they do this dance that's, like, skipping almost. And it's like, oh, my God, they've just fallen in love and the love is the skipping and it's a metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it's so, like, it's, like, even when it's tentative, it's graceful. It's just, like, this beautiful, seamless, graceful, magical movie moment. It's just wonderful. It's done real well. Yeah. It's done really well. And it goes from that shot, like, so it's this, like, kind of close-up shot to the big wide shot above of them yeah. doing the skipping dance. It's just perfectly done. They just Exactly. Did. And that's the example of, like, when words fail, you go into song. Like, that is one of those where it's like, yep, this is what that's supposed to be. You did it. They keep incorporating things back to the greater picture of the movie, you know? So it's like these moments are happening and moving the plot forward or giving us like character description, but it also ties into like the bigger theme of like filmmaking. Um, Next we have Moses Supposes. Uh Hell yes, what a great number. What a great old fashioned tap number. One of the things I love specifically about these old timey musicals. So I'm not personally a big Busby Berkeley person in general because what I like about a movie musical is when they can take what would have been cool on stage, like the talent and the creativity of stage, but make it work on a film. So like a Gene Kelly musical number and same with a Fred Astaire musical number, it's about like the person who's performing talent and the creativity of like what they can find in the scene and what's available around them and utilizing that. So like Moses Supposes is a perfect example because they're in an office, They're now that they're in talkies, they're going to diction class, we see Lena failing at it. And this whole scene, I believe the purpose of it is to show like, yeah, Don's doing just fine addiction. He's going to be just fine. And not only is he fine, he's having fun with it and thriving. And also uh, he's he's not like elitist. He's not being a jerk. Mm-hmm. Like he's kind of, you know, of the people. So I feel like those are the elements of this. But it, this all of the things are in the scene. It's like a table, chairs, mm-hmm. a curtain. The whole finale of the number is them putting stuff on the teacher. But it's like the number is about their talent and about them dancing and showcasing that and to me this is the gene kelly shining number like everyone else got their chance to kind of shine and you were staring at them in this number i cannot take my eyes off of him i i am glued to him he's so smooth it's like a precision but but it's smooth his acting while he dances is very good he is able to hit the nuances of his expression the little looks he has, the little emotions he has, the 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 way, like it's like this versus if you watch this number versus like sing, like singing in the rain number, 
it's so clear that he understands that physicality of not just dance, but how to incorporate the physicality of theater into dance, which I think is just so masterful for him. I mean, singing in the rain, we'll talk about that, of course, obviously, but like his arms are like kind of by his size and his shoulders are a little up and you can like, it's like the, he gets the, the feeling of the acting underneath in a dance number. He does so well and it's so effortless. I just love watching him. I really do. The way that he moves, the way that he's grounded yet so fluid and that he's always there. He's always in the scene. He's always acting that particular moment. Well, and this is all about like the tap skills too. So I think that's one of the reasons he, he and Dan Donald O'Connor both excel in like tap, but he has such good technique that you can't help but notice it. Like not that Donald O'Connor doesn't, but like Gene Kelly is like masterful in his own body. Like he understands how everything works. You could pause his movement at any moment and his arms are in exactly the right position. His, like it's like it's a it's a piece of art if you pause it at any moment because every single direction placement of his entire body is perfect, but he makes it look effortless. It's like when you see a really amazing ballerina, like the prima ballerinas, where their elbows are always in exactly the right place. Their their um, wrists are always in that graceful placement, and it seems so effortless. It's like that technique that they have, that's him. Like, it's so specific, but it's it looks effortless. It's just wonderful. She's <laughs> so good. That's exactly what it is. Because, yeah, there's a lightness but a groundedness. And you're like, how do you achieve yeah. both things? Oh, because right. you're magical. <laughs> That's Yeah, because you you're a magical being. Well, that number, to tie it all back in, its purpose, like, they're at the diction school and it ends with the teacher holding a sign that says vowel A and them going, A. Like, it's great. I feel like with a lot of the upbeat numbers, like the obviously make them laugh and the um, ready for love and this one, it's like there's this weird like manic energy to it. Like it builds towards this like kind of insanity. Like and it even is there a little bit with um, Good Morning too, where it builds into this like, why are we doing a matador scene? I don't know, but I'm here for it. Why are we just singing a at the end and piling on pieces of furniture on your teacher i don't know but i'm here for it like it kind of escalates in this like weird manic state in these songs but like i love it but it's an interesting choice when you see it over and over again you're like what is happening but it's fantastic i think to me they're so detail oriented they they care about the details like those curtains in that room look like moses's turban right like they care yeah. about these details and so it's so interesting to me that like their details are so important but then you're right they do there is something like that does get manic because i don't know quite how to describe it it's like they're yeah. so smiley and it's like enjoyable, but there's a little bit of veneer on it. So you're like, you have all these other details. What is the detail that you're adding that's making it give off this like slightly manic vibe? But yeah. I don't know how to change it and I don't want to change it, I, you know? No, neither do I. Yeah. And that's, and, and, but it's there in like a, a number of pieces where it just kind of like the exuberance goes and they kind of get, and it's, and it's a silliness too. Like it's a, it's a very playful, silly exuberance at the end, where it's just like the excitement becomes so much like now we're probably furniture on you. Ah, and it, and it just works because they can sell it so well. But there, there is that 
to it, which I love. I did write that there was light bullying in that scene. That's <laughs> like, you shouldn't bully this poor man. You are in a position of power here. And I think that this does constitute as bullying, but it's, I guess they, he's not offended right. at the end, I suppose. I think that it was a, it's a cool thing to see because you've seen the flashbacks of it because vaudevillian kind of like, you know, backstory, whatever. But this is the first time that you saw both of them do it together in the present day. So I'm like, oh, and it's nice to kind of see. It's like, oh, they still have that. Come They're still buddies. There's like Gene Kelly specifically still has that playfulness. You kind of like, oh, that's where you're from. You know, you can kind of see why he would want to go to a musical still because you see that playfulness and love of that vaudevillian kind of crazy silliness in the song that harkens back to like ready for love. And you're like, oh, he still has it. Like, I totally understand this relationship still. It totally makes sense that they're still friends. You tied into like my earlier theory even of like Don Lockwood is showing us that he's like still of the people and this number solidifies that by him going like dancing with his hometown buddy who he came up with. There was maybe a minute when he felt like a movie star and was out of touch. Moses poses, he's in touch with himself. And you get that relationship. You get why they're still friends. He's still that little boy who dances for pennies. He's got to dance. He's got to dance. He's got to dance. He's got the passion. There you go. So good morning. This number, what it provides to the movie is a, we've just received a solution to our problem and we're rejoicing about it. That's what this number is. It is rejoicing. And I noticed something that I felt so proud of this time. I was like, oh my gosh, Sarah, you're so smart. I must pat you on the back for this one. Um, I noticed the costumes. I had not noticed this before. So Donald O'Connor is wearing a rainbow tie. Debbie Reynolds is wearing a blue outfit, blue shoes, blue dress. Gene Kelly is wearing gray. He's bummed. His career's over. He's sad. But with the blue skies and the rainbow... He gets happy. Hey. And then at the end of the movie, when they're kissing under the singing in the rain sign, she's wearing that same blue dress. And he is now wearing a blue outfit because the skies are blue and they are clear and we are happy. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. All the tie-ins with the weather and the rain and the, oh, it's all there. They thought about this, you guys. They thought about it. They knew what they were doing. They even use raincoats in the number. This is another great example of using like the items that would be in that space to affect in your dance. Like this is a killer dance. It's so old fashioned musical, so fabulous. And they only utilize elements that would be found in that house that would be there right now. Like the couch and the bar and the raincoats. Oh, it's so good. It's so fun. It's so good. So the only part of the number that I questioned was like, does this hold up? Is when they break down into their like tours of the world music. Yes, the matador. The Hawaiian music. I did notice this time that they pretend that their raincoats are different instruments because that is how closely they pay attention to detail. So I'd mentioned the detail of like the Moses supposes and he looks like Moses with the striped Moses curtain. But this, so they use their raincoats to play different instruments and they're literally playing the different instruments that we can hear as an audience. And I was like, that is so cool. Good detail, everybody. Yeah, right before they go and take the raincoats, Debbie Reynolds looks at the raincoats, goes, ah, and points. And it's like a such a small, tiny little second, but it's like, 
they, that's how detail oriented this movie is. I mean, they could have easily just not done that, obviously, but they do. And they care about who's wearing whose hats. So like she's wearing Don Lockwood's hat because they're in love. Cosmo is wearing her hat because he's silly. And then um, Don is wearing Cosmo's hat because he's like, I am not effeminate and I must wear my friend's hat. <laughs> like I yeah. cannot wear her hat though I love her. <laughs> yeah. I must wear my friend's hat. But yeah, there's, there's just like, I love, they are so intense with the details and it's so good. And Debbie Reynolds did say, like, I think she said the two hardest things I've ever done in my life were childbirth and singing in the rain. Because <laughs> it's just, I think they shot this from like 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. Rumors are her feet were bleeding. You'd never guess. She is fearless. Can you imagine yeah. being 19 years old and being in a huge musical number in the center of two like gigantic musical stars that have these careers and this is your first big thing and she's just like the confidence she crushes it she's dancing down those stairs and she's not even looking down i would be looking down because i would think i would fall she's not looking down when she's dancing downstairs she's looking up because she's debbie reynolds i also like sing it to my daughter in the morning. So it's like a special love that I have for it. And I actually was was rewatching some of it because it was just happened to be on the TV when she woke up from her nap and she has nap rage, which is why we watch TV after her nap because she just hates the world for about 20 minutes. It's great. <laughs> um, so we were watching Good Morning. I'm like, oh, I sing this to you. Like, here's, here's, here it is. And at first she was like, no, what the fuck is this, mom? But after a while she got into it and after it ended, she goes, no mama more dance and i'm like i'm the best mother in the world it was great and then she kind of cried for more octonauts but for that minute i was like king of the world i'm so, so happy very proud of myself i know it's pretty great i do want to point out just two other like little details that have like just killed me for my life one of them is when they go bonjour monsieur and i'm like gene kelly you just made an american in paris you know how to pronounce monsieur like monsieur you know, <laughs> yeah. why are you saying Monsieur? Is it, maybe that's what they said in the twenties. I don't know. So that drives me nuts. And then um, at the very end of the dance, they have just stepped over a couch and tilted the couch sideways and they collapse and they're laughing and they're having fun. And Gene Kelly is trying so hard to make eye contact with Debbie Reynolds. Yes. But they can't catch each other's eye contact. Yeah. And you can tell that she gets along in real life better with Donald O'Connor than she does yes. in Gene Kelly. Absolutely. I felt that exact same thing. That exact same thing. And that led me to like Google it a little bit. I'm like, oh yeah, this, because I remember somewhere in the recesses of my brain, something about how she had a really hard time with this number and how like he said something kind of crappy to her. But I was like, oh, she doesn't want to look at Jane Kelly. She's pissed. She tries to remake eye contact with him. So he tries to make eye contact with her. She misses it. She tries to make eye contact with him. He doesn't see it. But you see him see her looking at Donald and like play, like putting her head on Donald's shoulder. Yeah. You kind of yes. see Gene Kelly be like, this is not how this is supposed to go, but whatever. It's the end of the take. Like you see this little <laughs> drama play yeah. out in about three seconds. Yes. And it's great. So people it's at home wonderful. check out that moment if you haven't seen it. Yes, please. But finally, we have the number, the big number, Singing in the Rain. Um, <sighs> what is special about this number is that it's not about like, it's not about the degree of difficulty. It's not about these insane dance moves that Gene Kelly is doing for you. It's about like seeing his heart and the joy that he is having, like a young child splashing about in the rain. And it's about the fact that they're shooting a musical number in the rain and how technically difficult that is. So those are like the two special huge elements of that. The word on the street has always been that he had a fever while shooting this. 
I felt like his daughter said it was 104 when she introduced the film, but on the internet it says 103. So he had 103 degree fever while shooting this. He was wearing a wool suit, which apparently kept shrinking, which is <laughs> another fun detail. And um, a rumor about this scene was that the way they got the rain to look that way was they put milk in it. But that is not the case. They just had really good backlighting that really showcased the rain droplets. So those are some fun little facts. I also mentioned this earlier. People don't really walk in L.A. I mean, you do a little, yeah. but you only walk to places that are relatively close. So the idea of someone walking from Hollywood to Beverly Hills in the rain is very far-fetched. I'm just going to put that out there. I also was shocked to know how much it apparently rains in LA. It rains in this movie so many times. Yeah, in LA it doesn't it just, rain like ever. It just downpours there. I mean, it's like Portland. That does crack me up. Well, especially because of how thick the rain is. Like when it really rains hard in LA, it rains hard for like an hour and then it's like a light rain. Like rain in LA is not a normal thing for us. And maybe, maybe it was different in the 20s because I mean, it's been a drought for like a decade. So maybe I just know the drought LA. But yeah, it it rains quite frequently in this film, which is unlike actual Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. Great point though. Um, and then, I mean, our final, we talked about the dream ballet in detail. So please go back to that if you want to hear about that. Um, but the final kind of movie musical moment that we have is like when they're in the Grauman's Chinese theater and they're showing us the lip sync where Gene Hagen, who's playing Lena, is lip syncing over Debbie Reynolds. And then we end with like the You Are My Lucky Star song, which I don't know if they wrote for the picture or not. But I mentioned this earlier Debbie Reynolds sang every song except for two of them. She did not sing You Are My Lucky Star, and she did not sing the Would You song that they put in the Dancing Cavalier film. That was sung by this woman, Betty Noyes, who did not get credit for it, again, ironically. But you're like, why did they use someone else's voice? Debbie Reynolds' voice is awesome. They felt like it didn't look correct um, having Gene Hagen sing, like it didn't look quite right having her sing Debbie Reynolds, I guess, in the movie because they were going for a more classical sound. I guess, but that doesn't make sense why they don't use her for that final number. Like she should be singing You Are My Lucky Star. I don't get it. Is it in a higher key? I got nothing. It doesn't make sense exactly, Um, but I wanted to point that out. And I also want to point out something really fun. So they make a whole big deal about like Debbie Reynolds dubbing Gene Hagen's dialogue. That scene that they do in the movie where Gene Hagen like has her lines like, our love will last till the stars turn cold. That's Gene Hagen's real voice. (laughs) They just had her talk normally because they were like, Debbie Reynolds' voice doesn't fit with her. It's a little younger sounding and like Gene Higgins' voice is a little deeper in real life. So th- I just think it's hilarious that she that's her real voice and they're really using it when they're describing. I love that. But yeah, the weird dubbing of like, I don't get why you're dubbing when you don't have to be, especially for You Are My Lucky Star. I mean, outside of the movie within a movie. Why that song? Why only one? And it's weird that they would do like in the movie that they would dub her of like, would you, which does make sense since they're clearly going for like a more classical vibe. Maybe they wanted a more classical sound, whatever. Like Debbie Reynolds does sound like more poppy Broadway-ish of the day, right? But then to have her lip sync backstage and that be her voice and those two voices are different and nobody notices. And then one second later to have You Are My Lucky Star and you're like, I can hear that those don't sound the same. It's weird. Rita Moreno was once asked about this for West Side Story because Rita Moreno can sing and she they dub her for that. And she's like, it's just what was done. People just did that. It didn't, they didn't care and it didn't matter. People, they just did it. 
So I wonder if it was like, oh, we don't have time to get her in the studio. Let's just have this lady do it. Something as silly as that. Like not that way anymore. And sometimes I think it should be, if I'm being honest. I think if you can't sing, you should be dubbed, if I'm being real about it. So yeah, we just did that. We just went through every song for you at home. Let's go about the movie now, you know, because we didn't <laughs> chat about anything. I do feel like this is the greatest movie musical of all time. I do feel that way. As a movie musical lover and as a musical lover, I think this is an awesome movie musical. And I personally do think it's the best of all time. It's a movie musical about movies. Like you're not going to get more movie musical than that. Though it does need more people of color, obviously, and would have been better had people of color been included. But Gene Kelly was influenced by people of color. Like he was influenced um, by an African-American dancer named Robert Dotson. I mean, Rita Moreno is in this and she's a Latinx woman, but like she doesn't really get to do anything. Right. She plays a movie star named Zelda and she gets like some great like red carpet walking moments, but that's not enough. So I do want to talk for a second about Gene Kelly, um, just as a person. People at home are not gonna get too deep into Debbie Reynolds because I suspect that we might be doing a Debbie Reynolds film in our future or a film about Debbie Reynolds. I just wanna, so don't worry everybody. I've got you covered, don't worry. But uh, Gene Kelly, I just wanna briefly touch on him. Um, my first early movie loves when I first got into classic movies, I talked about this a little bit last week, but your kind of gateway into classic movies for me at least, was movie musicals that were like already based on stage musicals because my parents love musicals and they took us to them. So we'd watch the movies too. So I kind of like got in through musicals and Gene Kelly was a huge part of that. And then I would say like the other kind of gateway people that get you into classic movies, for me, it was um, it was Paul Newman, it was Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, and then it was uh, Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. Oh, and Bogart and Bacall. Like those are your gateway into the classic movie world. Those are the people that you're like, I'm curious about this. What should I start to do? Start with like the musicals and all the people I just named and you'll find your way in. As a teenager, I totally loved Gene Kelly. I watched, I think I've seen every single one of his musicals except for Dewberry Was a Lady. I've seen them all. He's fantastic and I love him. And I'm gonna say something that does objectify him, but you know what? It's okay because as a woman, my people have been objectified for years and also I mean no harm and I cannot physically harm him, so. Sing it, sister. I just wanna put it out there that Gene Kelly has the best ass ever. His butt. Such a good butt. A great ass. And he has very Mwah. nice arms too. When he's got that rolled up sleeve shirt and you see the muscles and stuff, you're like, yes, Gene Kelly. So. Phenomenal tush, have always thought this. Even young self was like, that's a great ass. Four stars, recommend. So Gene Kelly, little about him, born in 1912. So he was like 40. Some famous films he's been in, we mentioned An American in Paris. That's probably his other like very huge musical on par with this. Um, on the Town, Anchors Away, It's Always Fair Weather, Brigadoon, Summer Stock, Cover Girl for me and my gal. Oh, fabulous. Um, I do want to mention, so he was married to Betsy Blair, who we talked about in the film Marty. She is fantastic in that film. So he was married to her until 1957, um, but he was also married to this woman named Jean Coyne. I think it's Jean. I don't know. It might be pronounced Jeannie. She's a dancer in this film. You can see her. She, I think she's wearing a yellow dress. She's out front for some of the gotta dance hand movement thingies. But he was married to her for a long time. They were married until she passed. But she was also married to Stanley Donnan, who was the other director of this. So they were married from 1948 to 1951, probably during the making of this film. They were getting maybe divorced. 
And then Gene Kelly marries her later. He marries her in 1960. So I was like, oh my God, what are the odds that you would be married to both directors of Singing in the Rain? She had really good taste. And he had originally met Betsy Blair. They did a show together um, when she was young. So he had been, I think she was very young. I have a feeling she might've been like 17. He was also married to a woman named Patricia Ward in 1990 until he passed in 1996. He was eight years old when he started dancing, but quit because he didn't want to be called a sissy by the other boys. But then he started dancing again when he was 15 and felt like he could defend himself. Like no one would call him a sissy anymore. <laughs> so he's like, well, I can dance now. Um, but he was also a really good athlete. So he got into this because he was very athletic. So he already has that kind of athletic skill set and background. He graduates high school at 16 and he starts college. He wants to be a journalism major. The stock market crashes and I feel like he changes his major. In 1932, he opens a dance school called Gene Kelly's Study of the Dance. And he does this while he's in law school. So he starts law school and has a dance studio. But he quits the law school like two months in and he's like, I'm just going to focus on the studio. He's a teacher there. Um, he ends up deciding to be a full-time like pursuer of the dance instead of just teacher of the dance. Um, and he starts <laughs> off as a choreographer. He choreographs a review called Hold Your Hats. So he goes on to Broadway. His first like big Broadway show is a Cole Porter show. He's a dancer in a show called Leave It To Me. He choreographs on Broadway as well. Um, I mentioned his influences. He was influenced by a black dancer named Robert Dotson and by George M. Cohen. And he took several styles of dance. And you can see that he incorporates all of it into his dancing. Because I feel for the time, he's kind of modern. Like he's got a more modern style. Um, but he also took dance with one of Rita Hayworth's relatives. He took like a Spanish dance class from her. So there's all of that. His big break is in 1940 uh, with uh, Rogers and Hart's pal Joey which eventually becomes a film with Frank Sinatra and Kim Novak and Rita Hayworth. But that's another story for another day. Um, but that's like his big break. That's what gets him noticed. So he goes out to Hollywood, makes a film with Judy Garland called For Me and My Gal that I enjoy, but I acknowledge that it's not the greatest film of all time, but it's still fun and it's nostalgic for the early 1900s and for vaudeville. Um, so yeah, he builds a career from there, becomes a big dance and movie star. The year before this, I mentioned American in Paris, wins the Oscar for Best Picture. He's a hot commodity. And here we are today in 1952. I should mention, um, once he can't really dance anymore, he kind of leans into the dramatic side of film. So he does like Marjorie Morningstar. And I think my most favorite of his serious ones is uh, Inherit the Wind. He plays like the sarcastic reporter. Um, and he's also in Xanadu, really roller skating. So that just needs to be mentioned as well. But of course. So that's him. I mean, Debbie Reynolds, we chatted about. She was born in 1932. She was a youngin' when this was made, 20 years younger than Gene Kelly, just to get to say it again. Um, and some of her famous movies were Tammy and the Bachelor, which is just swell if you haven't seen it. Go check that out. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen is the male lead, and you're like, I cannot watch you and not think of The Naked Gun. She got an Oscar nomination for The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Um, she's in Bundle of Joy. The Tender Trap, Give a Girl a Break, which I totally adore. Oh, she's in A Catered Affair, Susan Slept Here. And I think, did I say How the West Was Won? I don't remember. She's, of course, in our modern lives, she is in Will and Grace. She plays Grace's mom. And she is in Halloween Town, Disney Channel classic. It's great. It's when she peaked. 1998. That's right. Um, 
And people at home, you will also know her. She was married to Eddie Fisher and had the whole scandal about like he cheated on her with Elizabeth Taylor and left her with Elizabeth Taylor. And she's the mother of Carrie Fisher, grandmother of Billy Lord. The reason she's in this movie is at 16, she was discovered because she was Miss Burbank. Film scouts noticed her for Warner Brothers and MGM. And then um, she gets put in this movie. Gene Kelly did not want her to be in this movie. Um, he wanted like a more skilled dancer, but I think she's perfect for this movie because she is what this part is. Like she's someone just starting out new to this business, like getting their big break. So I think she's great in it, but I, I get what Gene Kelly was saying too, wanting like someone more seasoned. But yeah, she'd had like one big film before this in 1950. And that like was what convinced them she was prepared to do this. That's a leap. And she had a hit song on the radio from that film. I do just want to mention that Donald O'Connor plays Cosmo. He's fabulous in this. Some of his films are um, I Love Melvin with Debbie Reynolds right after this. And there's like a famous football dance that you see every single fall where she's like pretending to be a football. They show it whenever like football season starts again. It's so kooky and weird. Check it out. It's from I Love Melvin. But he's also in uh, There's No Business Like Show Business. He's also in that film. So I like that they also clue us in like what it felt like to transition from silent films to talking films. They show us all the bumps along the way and they show them not just like on set, but problems they had in screening. Um, so I loved seeing the scenes with the mic. I loved seeing the original scenes of when Donna, Don and Lena hate each other and uh, they're saying like, I hate you so much, but it's, since it's a silent film, no one can hear what they're saying. So they can like look like they're professing their love for each other, but say these hateful things to each other. And it's that's a great moment. And then um, when they switch and they have to do the talking, the the scene where they can't get her voice right into the mic, like, you know, all of those things really happened in real life. Like they're really taking real life moments and putting them into a film and turning it into comedy. And that scene also has the best line of the entire movie. I can't make love to a bush. Also, can we just shout out? So we're talking about Lena played by the fabulous Jean Hagen, who is channeling some like Miss Adelaide from Guys and Dolls. Oh, yeah. And she is crushing this role. Her comedic timing is excellent. And she's so gorgeous. Like, she's so graceful. And she's great at doing, like, the mannerisms of Lena on film. And you can see what a professional she is. And then nailing that voice. Like, knowing that's not her real voice. And then it's not I, – I was trying to figure out where she's from because it's not Brooklyn. Because she's got, like, I can't stand him. There's, like, something mm -hmm. that's not – Brooklyn about it but it's like this nasal what we expect of old-timey Brooklyn voice when I was watching it I kept thinking like you know she is a powerful woman in Hollywood she does have a good amount of power she has an amazing contract for whatever freaking reason um so it's like good job whoever negotiated that like was it you fantastic um I wonder like she because she is a smart lady but she isn't but she is right like and I wonder how much like what would what would her character read? And obviously this isn't the movie and it's not the point of the movie, but like this is like a thought experiment. I'm like, what would her character read if she actually had a normal voice? Like what would it read like? Like she'd be kind of a badass lady. It's like, I want like, why don't you let me talk? Stop talking over me all the time. Like I am a powerful woman, like all these kinds of things. Like I just wonder like how that would play out if you just did like a thought experiment of like let's just dub you over with like a normal freaking voice and see how it would go oh that's so interesting because yeah part of what 
I don't know. Well, part of what takes us away from her too is we see how shallow she is. Oh yeah, she has her faults. She has her faults, but you're right. There is something about that voice that it makes people think she's dumb when she does have really good ideas. She does have the dumb ideas too, like going out and talking in front of an audience when you've just had someone dub your voice for the last few hours. That's not bright. But all of the evil plans she comes up with is very smart. Right? It's like, good job, girl. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting that... Well, I don't want to say women don't help women in this, but the women that don't help women are the women that fail in this film. True. Like even Rita Moreno's character, she only helps Gene Hagen's character because it benefits her. But that's Hollywood too, helping people because it benefits you. So that could just be a comment on Hollywood as well. That's true. Those are great points, Zoe. Because right, she has some badass qualities about her too. She does. It's like, oh, you're like a badass lady. Like you also are very dumb in a lot of instances. But like, you know, I feel like you could be a strong woman. Or even like that being so good at her job. Like you can see that she's really great at expressing herself in a silent film and like knows how to move her body and knows what to do. And yet has doesn't have the self-awareness to hear that her own voice is bad. So yeah, it's like the double-edged sword of that. Like you see both sides of her. I do love that women are prominently featured in this in general. I feel like by doing the songs, we actually did talk a lot about what I wanted to talk about anyway. I mean, that's like saying a lot about the film too. It's like how the songs are important. And if you talk about the songs, you talk about the actual movie because the songs are so well integrated into the plot and the reason why the movie exists and why you're interested in it. Exactly. The songs are what make the movie. It's like, it's special without them, but it's, they're what make it. They are the reason you watch Oh, I did want to also just mention another cool behind the scenes thing that we see in this is looping. Like we see looping is like basically dubbing over other people, but they show the looping process and it's not that different from what you do today. So that was really cool to see. I also didn't chat about Stanley Donnan enough and I'm sorry, we will. But um, him and Gene Kelly directed this together and they met on the set of Pal Joey, uh, the set being like, sorry, not the movie set, but like when Pal Joey was on Broadway. Um, and I think Stanley Donnan had like a minor part or like an understudy part or a smaller part and they became friends and collaborators and they worked together on several films. They worked together several times, but eventually they did have a falling out because they both felt like the other one didn't appreciate what the other brought to the table. Like they didn't feel like they were equal partners, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like they were, they both felt like they were contributing so much and the other wouldn't acknowledge it. So they end up not getting along so great, which is very interesting that the one woman was married to both of them yeah. after they fall out. So anyway, we'll talk about Stanley Donovan again another day. The show's too long, so we can't keep doing it. Do we have any moments that we wanted that we didn't talk about? The, one of the best moments in the whole film that we need to chat about really quick before we move on is when they're watching a screening of the bad film that they made and we see all the mistakes of the early silent film days. So the sounds of things are totally off. Um, So like when he throws his cane, it makes a giant thud. And when she's playing with her pearls, they sound ridiculous. Um, And they can never figure out where the mic was so they don't get their voices. And then the sound unsyncs from the dialogue it's so when, you know, she's being attacked by the villain, their voices are opposed. So it looks like Lena is saying no, no, no in a man voice. And it looks like he's saying yes, yes, yes in a woman's voice. And it's very silly. And I think it perfectly shows how nobody sets out to make a bad movie. And there's a thin line between what can go really well and what can go really wrong in filmmaking. Yes. As I was watching it this time and seeing the the first iteration and then the second and the third of like how they made the movie and how horrible it goes each time. I kept going back to like, this is Noises Off. Like this is a movie version of Noises Off. It's like, it, it really is like it's behind, it's like the rehearsal and then it's the show and then it's the actual production of it where everything actually goes wrong. Like it has those three perspectives, like, which I thought was really funny. 
Yeah. And it has the perspective of the future, just of the uh, the joy of seeing people go, ah, talking pictures will never amount to be anything. You know, they're vulgar. Like just knowing the future, knowing like they're the biggest thing ever and they're how we watch movies for the rest of our lives. Like, yeah, <laughs> I love that. Like seeing things from the future perspective, like watching back what people would have thought. One of the things I can see in my eyeline right now, a quote that I always love is when Lena goes, I make more money than Calvin Coolidge <laughs> put together. Like that one. And there's like, there's nothing, there's nothing between us, just air. I like the tarantula one. It doesn't read so good when you try to write it down. But Lena's like, you can't kiss me like that and not mean it. And he's like, I meet the greatest actor in the world. I'd rather kiss a tarantula. And she's like, oh, no. And he's like, you don't believe it? Joe, bring me a tarantula which I also noted because I was like, Joe, that's what's on the shirt that lights up. They clearly love some dude named Joe and they're naming stuff for him. Homage to Joe. Oh, one other cool thing that I noticed that's a detail that I wanted to share because I was like, oh, this is cool. So when they're showing, when we're seeing the bad footage of the movie that's not good, that's in black and white, that's their first talking movie together, they make sure that it's always outlined in the red of the stage, that we get like the the curtains, the stage curtains, so that we as a modern viewer know that we're present. Like, I love that. That they're like, we're never going to the past, really. There's always a piece of the present there. Um, so it's never fully black and white. I just thought that was such a cool detail. Also at the beginning, I love that we start with like a gossip columnist who's painting things that are clearly not true. Like she's talking about like, look at this happy couple, you know, they're newlyweds and they look, they're clearly not joyful at all. <laughs> or like, she's talking about like, look at Zelda, the hot young flapper on the scene. She's had so much heartache in her life. Thank goodness she found this man. And he's like this old man that she clearly married for money. Like there's all of <laughs> yeah. these things where it's like, they're painting it one way and we can obviously see that it's the other way. And it like leads leads into Don Lockwood talking about his fictional life that doesn't exist and about how they're painting this picture. But like, it's very clearly, like it's just for the gossip columnist, none of it's really real. And Lena can't buy into it not being real. She believes the gossip. And that harkens to the whole theme of the movie. It's like what's real and what isn't. So it really sets all of that theme up really well. And yeah, there's so many good lines. Like I think for the first time I actually caught a little bit of what Short people have long faces. Long people have short faces. Jump on the piano. And Cosmo is so witty. He has the funniest lines besides Gene Hagen. Him and Gene Hagen have the two funniest lines, I think, in the whole show. In the show. And by show, I mean film. <laughs> and this doesn't translate as well to stage. Like, you can do this on stage, but this is so quintessentially, like, film-based that it yeah. just works so well in a film. I should know I was in it in college and my umbrella didn't open. I remember that. I was basically like glorified chorus. I think I had like a line. Um, but yeah, at the very end, we all opened our umbrellas and my umbrella didn't open. Modern Lens. Everyone, we have reached the Modern Lens portion of this program. What does not hold up? Some things that we've already mentioned. One was the Andrew over Sweet 16 look away in Beautiful Girl. So creepy. Let's be real. The biggest, biggest Modern Lens things that don't hold up are that there's no people of color in this film with the exception of Rita Moreno, but there's like not representation of people of color in this film. There is that tribal weird dance. Yeah, it's not awful. okay. They have brown face in this. Yeah. They're doing some sort of like depiction of natives in some way. I'm not sure where they're supposed to be from. They don't know either. It's clearly white men wearing brown face and mm -hmm. it's awful. That's a really terrible moment. 
They want to show us how in the silent film days, you could have tons of different sets for different movies right next to each other and walk down a studio lot and just see everything being filmed at once because they didn't have to worry about sound. That's what they're showing us. So we see this very uncomfortable, like tribal sort of dance that's awful with people in brown face. And then next to that, we see um, like a college football team and there's cheerleaders. And then next to that, we see like a train robbery. We're seeing all that. And everybody on set knows each other and they're all pals. They're showing like camaraderie. But yes, that moment specifically is very uncomfortable and hard to watch as a modern viewer. Oh, I didn't love when Gene Kelly hits on her. So first of all, the age gap between Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds is 20 years which is just, you know, that exists. That's the thing. That's <laughs> <laughs> there. It's not as awful in this because, okay, just personally, I, in my cute little baby brain, I was like, I wonder if this is how George Clooney and Amal Clooney fell in love. Like, I wonder if George Clooney was like, don't you know who I am? I'm George Clooney. And she's like, no, don't you know who I am? I'm awesome. And he was like, whoa, you are awesome. And he, you get that vibe from this film that he's like, older but hasn't really like had awareness until now you know i love them together but yes it is awkward and i think she said once kissing him was bad because he would like jam his tongue in her mouth and she'd be like oh, uh. no and so that's why that last kiss looks so weird because it's like so forced like he looks like he's trying to stick his tongue in her mouth and she looks like she's like please don't so there's that and then um yeah so i don't love him being older than her in that way but i also don't love him the way he hits on her in the car yeah it's very uncomfortable yeah it's like he's trying to grope her and she makes a line about like you're not real you're not flesh and blood and then he like jokingly leans in like i could rape you i think molest is somewhere in that dialogue and i'm like yeah god is you know the whole thing that whole scene is like some pretty serious red flags and then of course like she pulls over and she's like officer officer this man is like, like jumped in my car it's like no you're fine girl he's famous he won't do anything to you because he's famous because that's never happened in hollywood before okay yep it's true um so yeah that's all uncomfortable and gene kelly like we it's fine because we know he's not gonna hurt her and because he's making a silly face while he's doing it so you're like oh he's not really going to molest or grope her or harm her because he's making a silly face but if this was another story he yeah. could have um so that's uncomfortable and then cosmo and the movie girl there's a girl that he's talking to at the party that's like could you really get me into the movies and he's like yeah i could and i was like oh please don't do this cosmo don't be sleazy gross walk away the hawaiian number in general i was like i don't know where we stand with yeah. them doing the hawaiian stuff i don't know not great yeah not great and then um <laughs> i wrote the light bullying of the vocal <laughs> oh and the fact that you mentioned this earlier that nobody notices that lena doesn't talk so lena they want to keep her voice a surprise for the talky parts they want to surprise us with her voice so she's silent for like the first i don't know 15 minutes of the film and nobody lets her talk and the fact that you might not notice she hasn't talked or like, oh, that's kind of messed up. And like society in that, in like the movie world and all her fans, like she just never talks. She never, like, that's not a thing. Like at parties, does she not talk either? Like at the party they were at, like, does she only talk to a specific amount of people that already know her voice is insane? But yeah, you made such a good point that I can't stop thinking about that I'm going to think about for days now about like, what would we think about her if she did have a different voice? What would we like, how would we perceive her if she did talk in her own voice? What if she was the Angela Lansbury character from Harvey Girls. Like, yes. how would that play? I mean, except that Angela Lansbury and Harvey Girls turns out great. She had Heart of Gold. Yeah, and she's awesome, and she's a badass, and she's, yeah. And Lena's rotten. It's like, I, I know how it needs to be what it is. Yes, it's perfect as it is for storytelling. I yeah. totally get it. 
But it's like, I just wonder, I just wonder how our perception, how much of it would change if her voice was just different. Yeah. If she was Rosalind Russell. Good call. All right. So we've reached the final portion of the program, the double feature segment of the show. If you liked this, what should you watch? Well, duh, you should watch An American in Paris. I should mention it's it's really sexist and it's going to hurt your feminist brain. But like, it's a well-made musical. Yeah. I haven't seen that in such a long time, but I love Gershwin. I love Gershwin so much that that ballet number was one of my favorite ever because of that. It's a gorgeously made musical that is also very incredibly sexist. This is not as sexist. This feels a little better. And it's so interesting that this like wasn't as big of a hit at the time. Like this did well, it it was like a good hit, you know, but it wasn't like critically acclaimed. And now we're like, it's excellent. I think it's better than an American in Paris, but yeah. it wasn't perceived that way at the time. I weirdly think if you wanted to watch like a behind the scenes of Hollywood. So, I mean, we're clearly going to name some Gene Kelly movies, but if you wanted like a kind of darker feel, I think if you watched this with Sunset Boulevard, that would be really fun and interesting because they're both about like kind of the, ba- the underbelly of Hollywood and one is like seedier than the other. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And it would be, I guess, about like the woman hitting on a younger man as opposed to the older man hitting on a younger woman. I like it. I would say another fun thing to watch with this, uh, Debbie Reynolds did this movie called Give a Girl a Break that also has a very talented like company involved in it. But it's this really, like nobody thinks about it. It's this gem of a movie musical that Bob Fosse is in, that the champions, like Marge and Gower Champion are in it. It's like a fantastic dance musical that is kind of about, it's like about the casting of a show and who they're going to cast as the lead, which of these women are going to get the lead role. And it's like, you know, give a girl a break, which one's going to get it. (laughs) But I feel like that would be a cool behind the scenes, but of like Broadway and it's Debbie Reynolds and it's got fabulously talented people in it. And then I would say for Gene Kelly, I mean, Summerstock and On the Town are both great. Any Gene Kelly musical, I feel like you're going to be great. It's always fair weather. He's with Sid Charisse. That's fabulous. Yeah. It talks about weather. And this is singing in the rain. (laughs) Oh, and I wrote like, I love Melvin because Donald O'Connor and Debbie Reynolds are in it. That came out the year after this. And it's got some kooky dance numbers in it. And then I wrote, that's entertainment, which I enjoy so much. I enjoy all of the that's entertainments. So Mrs. Peterson also showed us these in her class as well. There were these movies that came out that Gene Kelly made where it was like, he he was like, there are all these incredible dance numbers. Someone should compile them together and put them out as like a greatest hits of all of these movie musical numbers. And that's what he did. So we have That's Entertainment, which came out in the 70s. We have That's Entertainment 2. And then That's Entertainment 3, which came out in 1994. And I actually feel like I saw it as a kid too. I somehow recall seeing it as a child, but Miss Peterson reintroduced me to it. But yeah, it's all of the cool MGM big musical numbers put into, it's like watching them like music videos, kind of. You get to watch them all in a row. That's cool. And oh, oh, and if you want to watch a good movie musical, because you're like, let's watch movie musicals that are over the top and we're not stage plays. Zoe and I watched Seven Brides for Seven Brothers together. Obviously, you should watch Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and White Christmas and then listen to our podcast about them. But those are also great movie musicals that were made specifically to be movie musicals. Exactly. Yeah. Good call. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for coming on this show. I love being here. And everybody, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Zoe Palco. They will be featured on our Instagram page. 
If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.